Yeah. Oh, wait, were you recording already? <laughs> Excuse me. I didn't realize we were beginning. Mm-hmm. I thought I had another minute. Well, I am a human woman, and sometimes I blow my nose. My that name is, is Ellen Cherry. Welcome to the Why Are You Famous podcast. Maybe the reason is because uh, of scenes like that. What do you mean? What do you mean by scenes? Oh, and my name's Andrew Grimm. <laughs> oh, hey, Andrew Grimm. Hello. Um, because I just blew my nose into the microphone, not realizing that it had started. Uh, well, yes, you were distracted by mucus. Plus, I have like a, you know, I just revealed an, an intimate quirk. Which is that I feel like if you blow your nose, it's only satisfying if it makes a noise at the end, like. <laughs> yeah, I was like. Do you want to demonstrate it again? Sure, sure. Go ahead. Um, feel free. <coughs> yeah, I always find that the um, the satisfying feeling of space in your nose, like immediately after you blow it. Yeah, whereas like you know. There's like a, it's, it's a little bit of there's a coolness there, and it just feels like there's like this optimism for the future <laughs> because there's so much more space than there was before. Ooh, that's gonna dovetail nicely into what we're talking about today. I know, right? Space, the void into the future, space into, in the future. Yeah, what is it gonna look like? Well, before we started talking, I was thinking about it very cynically because I was just like, we have this, we've had this moment that has lasted. For a year now. It's been a, a year-long moment. That involved the ability to, for many of us, to contemplate um, the ongoing environmental crisis, the mm-hmm. ongoing um, push for social and economic and racial justice. Um, and then, of course, and that's tied, both of those are very, very much um, tied into recovering from a you know deadly respiratory virus that has taken over 510,000 American lives, which is just incomprehensible to understand how to even begin grieving that loss on like a personal level and then also on like a national level, a global level. Um, so I'm going to blow my nose again. Just kidding. <laughs> um, just the idea of like I the cynic in me is starting to see the opportunity to reimagine a possible future that is radically different than what was considered normal is starting to slip away. And it's based on an article I read yesterday about um, that carbon emissions are returning to pre-pandemic level as people get vaccinated and restrictions ease and, um, you know, life returns to whatever quote unquote normal was. Mm-hmm. before February 2020 that the same habits are going to ensue and probably um, be souped up a little bit because people are going to be so excited to drive places and right. use the world's resources because they're going to be free. I understand like the, the psychological reflux that's going to happen. Right. It's a reactionary. Yeah. So... Um, what we were thinking about talking about today um, was, is, what does the future look like? What are we, ima- what are we imagining for the future? Yeah. What, what you know, it, the, that phrase of, of getting back to normal is, you know, and as, as you read articles about it and you think about it, it's like, well, I don't know if it's ever going to go back to, to normal. 
but there's going to be, you know, the, the new normal that's going to be created or like more. And it's not about being trapped, but maybe freedoms. I don't know, something like something along those lines where we think about l- l- fewer restrictions on what we're doing. Um, but even then, like, what is what does the landscape look like? I mean, for me, like, I, th- I think about music and I think about playing out and all that other stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's it's. I don't know what it looks like other than it's going to be different. You know, the music world has been, it's going to look different for us. It won't look different for Billie Eilish. Like she's. I honestly, I can't comment because I don't really know anything about her music or career. Well, it's, uh, no, I know I'm, she's around and like, I'm not unaware of yeah, the Billie Eilish. But I'm not being critical. What I'm saying is like somebody who has achieved such mass success or mass distribution or exposure. How, yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's notoriety. It, it's going to be a. It's it's. I'm not looking for her to tell me the truth of the situation. Right. Because I don't consider her like a person with boots on the ground. Right. No. Her level. I mean, Taylor Swift. Any of those people. I mean, they could be generous and give away their money and and do stuff like that, and that's great. But for me, the, you know, when they put a record out and they say, you know, they talk about like the the struggles of where they are. I'm like well, promoting it. You're like, yeah. well, I don't know mm. if we, ex- we are experiencing the same reality. <laughs> t- t- tell me about your million dollar PR team that, yeah, I know mine. I can't get mine to work at all. Like the millions of dollars I spent on like whatever, like, so, and, and that's not a, you know, that's fine because that's where they are. I mean, they got there and, and, but it's going to be different on the independent level. Um, and even on the, like the low independent level that we're on, like, you know, we don't sell out venues. We don't play, you know, 15 people is like a victory. Um, so I'm not, you know, to me, I, I don't know what that looks like. For those other people, oh, you're going to be just fine. Like, they're still going to be playing the city winery. They're still going to be like, you know, doing their tours and playing, you know, the auto bars of the world and 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 like bigger things or whatever. Like Jason Isbell is going to be just fine. Mm-hmm. Like, cause he's still going to play the Grand Ole Opry and, you know, the 2000 plus seat venues that he's able to sell out and he's going to be able to put records out. And, and that's, I don't think that's going to change at all. I think what's going to change is for everybody else to get to that level. Like it's a whole different ball game because, you know, all the bars and restaurants and small venues that have had to close. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and everyone else is going to be out touring. There's not going to be room for anybody else there. Well, yeah, I mean, like that's one of the things that you and I have talked about over the last couple of weeks. And and somebody posted this on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was pretty, um, is the word prescient? Prescient. Mm-hmm. That the, the return to, I want to talk about two things. First of all, the word normal and the violence that that word contains. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that to me, that's the second thing I want to talk about. But the first thing being that this person was was um, saying or writing about when restrictions are lifted and people have been vaccinated and venues are open, that the majority of us that are friends on Facebook that are in the working community of the music community of Baltimore or other cities that you and I have traveled to, Richmond, Indiana, Chicago, you know, um, my hometown, quote unquote, Dallas, Texas, um, <laughs> it's an illusion um that you were going to be part of like a five band bill because there are going to be so many people clamoring to play live music that you would be crowded onto a stage um 
and that the audiences would would have energy for probably an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. But I think that that it will be like a rush. Yeah. And I would say honestly, with the way that our attention spans have been cultivated f- for social media and the soundbite for the last fifteen to twenty years, I would actually say that I I predict that that's that boom and bust cycle will last two months. Right. There's going to be a great enthusiasm and passion for going out, and then there's going to be the shrinking back into realization that there's really the hardcore music fans who go out to music every night. Mike Jones is one of those people. He mm-hmm. like is one of the own, one of the people that I know that attend in the in the before times attended music every night he possibly could. Live music, love live performance, and there's diehard fans like that that will just continue to like support no matter what. Um, but the average person who saw maybe one show a month or something, or maybe one show every couple of months is going to be dedicated for a couple of months and then go back into their baseline, which is, that's not a judgment. It's just a statement of like what I imagine is going to happen. Right. And I've been thinking about the word normal for the last year because there was such an emphasis on it for the first couple of months about returning to normal, this obsession with returning to normal. And my response to always was like, Hey, Normal sucked. Mm-hmm. Normal is actually a, a violent word because it is used violently. If you're not normal, you uh, if you're queer, you're not normal. Mm-hmm. If you are marked as other in any way, it's not normal. Um, if you have any psychological issues going on, that's considered an abnormality. You know, like there is this definition of normalcy, normalcy that is like steeped in homogenousness mm-hmm. and that everything should be this flat line, linear, normalized thing. And I have never been comfortable with that word. And luckily for me, because of my privilege being a white person and also being a person from the middle class and growing up middle class, I was able to like slide in to versions of normality in my life that made me acceptable. But because of my artistic spirit and the person that I am, I've always braced against it. I've always used it as a way, the word normal to push my own boundaries. Like I I don't, I look at normalness as boring Mm-hmm. on its most benign definition and violent in its most extreme because it's a form of control. And like if I want to, when I imagine the future, which is what we're talking about, I want a new normal, which is that there is a widespread recognition of how fucked up everything is True. and a sense of humor about it a sense of willingness to engage. Um, I just want to make sure if, if the state of Maryland calls me. Yes. So that's okay. Andrew has to check his phone because speaking of abnormal, um, there's, you know, systems in place that prohibit us from receiving back the, the taxes that we've paid into the right. system that we had, had been assured would support us Yes. yes. In, the, in the terms of unemployment. Right. So um, back to you. Yeah. So like the, when I imagine the future, I, 
I don't want to return to what people's version of normal is because I consider that a really oppressive and terrible place to exist. And if we're going to imagine a new normal, the new normal should be radically honest and different. Now, let's get into the brass tacks of what that looks like. Because I want this to be like, I, I want this to be an episode that you and I can reflect upon in a year. And mm-hmm. maybe we can set out some things. Here we are. Today is March 3rd, the third day of the glorious month of women's history. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk about a project that I'm working on that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm hoping to see continue. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious for us to just kind of state some things that are swimming in the waters of hopes and dreams, pure fantasy, um, based in reality that are both personal and global. Mm-hmm. Go. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I guess the, the, the key is relating it to our music careers. Yeah. Our arts practices. Yeah. What does it look like? You know, how do you, you know, well, I mean, I think the first, the first thing that we would, can I interrupt? Of course. May I interrupt? I want the listener to realize that Andrew Grimm, a talented, extremely creative and talented musician and artist, is also a certified, degreed teacher and dedicated over 20 years of his adult life to teaching our young people how to think and reason and left that career to pursue music full time and has now been, I wouldn't say forced, but you had to go back to teaching because of the pandemic mm-hmm. yeah. and because of the state of the old normal of the music business. I mean, you were teaching before the pandemic mm-hmm. started. You'd gone back to teaching part time. Teaching on the college level. Yeah. And so like that is something that I know that you personally want to change and it, it involves like several fixes in the system and also in the system of yourself. Yeah, well, the and the the thing about you know going off into to the world of of playing music full time, and and as anyone will tell you, it's you know it's it's a hustle and a hustle and a hustle and a hustle. And I had several side jobs when I started that were able to bring in money that also gave me, they were flexible enough in their schedules. That you I were could, working construction. You were working as a sound engineer. Yeah, I was working at Wind Up Space yep. a, a lot. Um, and then, you know, at some point, you know, those jobs kind of shifted a little bit. And um, to have the opportunity to, the flexibility to get out there and tour and stuff was good, but also I wasn't really those worlds weren't matching up financially. And, you know, the thing about, and and maybe it's just me, I can only speak from my experience. I know other people do it differently, but the, you know, the amount of money I would make a show is like 10 bucks, 20 bucks, you know, uh, if I'm lucky a hundred. And then touring on that is the, the economics are really difficult. And I didn't stay in hotels. I, you know, slept on floors and, 
No, at, at the time, I was 45, 46. Well, the, think of the tours that we raised money for. Right. We raised money specifically so that we could feel that we had actually earned an income because if we hadn't raised a couple thousand dollars before leaving for tour right. to pay for lodging, gas, and food. Right. And I, we would post this stuff and I would get pushback from people that'd be like, well, you have those expenses if you were living at home anyway. And I'm like, actually, I have double expenses yeah, because I have to house myself right, outside. You pay the rent and I'm paying mortgage. On the road, I'm also paying for my living at home that's yeah. being unused. It's not as if I live in a co-op where I can just be like, somebody can use my space while I'm right, gone. Right. Um, there's a special amount of balance there that like, I mean, there are groups like uh, Community Center, this band that lived literally on the road yeah, for, they lived in a van. for yeah. several years. Yeah. And they were essentially houseless because they chose to dedicate all of their money and time and energy to being on tour. And that's a model that works. However, it wasn't sustainable. I mean, there are, there are people in that group that decided they wanted to do different things with their yeah. lives and would have to leave and shift. And so the, the fantasy of having like in an ideal world, the thing that would support my rent is a passive income, mm -hmm. right? I wouldn't be making money to pay my rent on the road. Right. The money I made on the road would be paying for the road expenses mm -hmm. and then also having, you know, like whatever percentage I had decided to save. The passive income, which I, you know, for a brief period of time, maybe the 60s to the 90s where songwriters and, and performing musicians actually made royalties on recordings sure. that were sustainable and trackable um i missed that window a mm -hmm. and my passive income comes from you know spotify and, and, and subscription and Bandcamp and subscription yeah. well band my subscription service is not a passive income because i do still generate content for that i'm talking about the fact that like i created a, a work of art once sure and it continues to earn money yeah um, and I don't have to think about it. The check just shows up. Right. So the only passive income I have is like every three months I get 26 to $35 from CD baby, which is the summation of that three months of streaming services. Right. Now, granted, I'm not focusing my energy on promoting a YouTube channel or I've, I've focused, focused more of my energy on my own content creation and exploration. So that, that is my choice. Right. Right. But the, you know, you and I have talked for hours on this podcast about dispelling the myth about how that actually works. Yeah. Like you have to spend a lot of money and time and energy with professional video makers and, yeah. and promoters to actually get a foothold into that world. Yeah. And even then there's no guarantee that there's a payoff on it. Right. As, um, yeah, it's kind of like, it's like, you know, when you, when you own a house, everything is a thousand dollars to fix to start. Right. And then in the music business, everything's a thousand to two thousand dollars just to get something to happen. Right. And you know, yeah. So, well, I think my my point about the about the the teaching thing and all that other stuff, like where that brought me here, is like right before the pandemic hit. Well, not right before, but you know, I was planning on I had a forty five day tour booked. I was doing promotion for it. I spent you know, a lot of money uh, on the booking agent right? paying for that. Um, the two of you work together because it's not as if a, an indie booking agent has the resources to just focus on your career alone. You're also assisting this person by providing them all of the promotional materials that they need, all of the 
Like you worked for months. I witnessed that. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about it, how hard you worked on this tour. It was devastating to lose each of those potential relationships that you had made with venues because that was sort of the point was that you right. were going out for six weeks, which is a long time to be away from your home and family mm-hmm. and and your relationships and your work and to be out there, you know, basically a traveling salesperson. Right. And establishing relationships with these venues, 70% of which are not going to survive survive. this pandemic. And so that work is essentially like, you know, it's not even like building a muscle. It's... No, it's, it's, um, it's like working out with, uh, with, with Twinkies. Yeah. It was totally ephemeral. It's like, (laughs) like, there it goes. I'm I'm pumping my arm muscles, but it's just shoving a Twinkie into my mouth. (laughs) And like... And and that was like the the thing about it was like I was looking at that tour as an investment, um, because it was I was like investing my time to build something greater, and and also it was I was not going to come back that fall and teach at the college. Right, it was you were considering it as a stepping stone to a level of performance and play, right. and then you were like going to to piggyback onto that tour. Yep another six months later by immediately contacting the venues and saying like, Hey, we're doing another round. Let's do it again. Yeah. And I, and the plan was to, after that tour was over, I was going to hit the road again, um, in November, uh, for a month. Like I had, I had those things set up and we're ready to go. And also that was like a momentum. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what happened to my booking agent he lives in, um, you know, I, I know this is going to sound str- crazy to people, but he lives in Jakarta. Um, with his wife, she's, she's from Indonesia and then, you know, he lived there. And when I talked to him, he's like, this was his job was booking independent venues for people individually. Right. And so I don't know how many people he had working, he, he was working for at that time, but like, you know, that all that goes away, right? all the stuff that he's built up. Um, and so, you know, once once I committed to that and the college offered me a job anyhow, and I knew at that point, like, I guess they offered me the job like around maybe April or something like that. And, you know, using my, my future sense of what was going to happen, I was just looking at the numbers and I was like, Oh yeah, there's no way, there's no way this stuff's going to be open. No. And there's no way. And so I just, I took the job because I knew, that there, it was, we were going to be stuck. And I was like, well, in a, in a time where everyone else is losing their job, you know, the, everyone, yeah, what's the prudent move here, you know? And, and like, it speaks to a certain sense of acknowledging the privilege that I live with that in a time where people are losing their jobs, I get offered a job and it's a job I don't want to do necessarily. Sorry, McDaniel. But I mean, like I'm interested in, in the music thing, but I'm like, all right, you know what? <laughs> I'll take it because, And that's especially like, I want to take a moment to recognize for people who may not understand what this feeling is like for a creative person, because, and I want to put it in language that would make it make sense to anybody who is listening, who, you know, may not feel that they're personally creative, which I think everybody is creative. Um, But that to, to hear this narrative throughout our lives both culturally and sometimes from our family members that you have to do something, you have to do a regular quote unquote regular job. To a support, normal job. Yeah. A normal job. There's that violence again. Um, like to support your dreams and that that's part of this like glorified narrative. 
And I can tell you that when I was cleaning houses, like, because that's the work that I did primarily, um, in the last five years for three years, I cleaned houses to support my music habit. Um, and I consider myself like a successful musician. Like I think, look at the things that I've been able to create and I see them as successful. I think about the people that I've gotten responses from that have been touched or moved or, you know, have thought things because of the music that I've created or had an experience with me that I consider myself a success, but I don't, I wasn't able to do it on the merits of, of my ability alone. Just the art. Yeah. Yeah. I had to, I had to feed myself by doing other work. Now I'm grateful for that other work because that type of work, especially manual labor, especially cleaning houses can has, which I've done, like I've waited tables. I've worked in a factory. I've worked in an accounting firm. I've taught lessons. I've done dog walking. I've done babysitting. I've done whatever. Like I, what did um, Gillian Watts say? It, it never, I never minded working hard. It's who I'm working for. for. Yeah. And that's, I've just accepted that over the years as like, okay, these are the stop gaps and that the narrative is true. Like I also participate in the narrative that artists are constantly having to support themselves doing something other than art. And it, it was really brought home during this pandemic because I will never say that medical professionals and infrastructural and infrastructure professionals are not essential. Of course mm-hmm. they are essential. Even politicians are essential workers because they are keeping that st- structure running. You know, like these are essential people, essential jobs. But the fact that like <laughs> I realize that we have to have tiers and classifications so we can understand the world. But there's an opportunity for the last year to really look into our communities and say, oh, art is the reason why life tastes good Mm -hmm. and feels good and feels poignant and moves us and makes us think deeper. We all know this. Like So many people know this and feel this. So many people realized it especially in the first couple months of the pandemic they were just like oh my god i didn't realize how important music especially live performance was to my life yeah and because the pandemic has ground on for a year because the the unrelenting news of the systemic oppression of black and brown people in our country continues to just be like there's no justice There's doesn't even seem to be a pathway to justice because the environment is crying out to reconcile with us. Like every, I understand everyone is psychologically ground down by it, Mm -hmm. that it's hard to imagine that we could look into the future and say that the new normal says that the arts are essential, that, Artists are essential workers, that they are at the forefront of our cultural and social and racial justice advancement, Mm -hmm. that they are infused with our appreciation for what it means to be a conscientious and conscious sentient being on this planet. And like, how do we restructure our thinking so that it's not considered like a frivolous thing? And that's, that's like an internal battle that I struggle with because of the thing I just said, that we have members of our own families of origin who have said to us in the past that, 
you know, you just have to do this thing you don't like to get to the thing you do like. And it's like. Yeah. For some reason, that's some sort of fucked up rite of passage. It's such a, it's such a weird narrative to like participate in and to accept and to not push back on. And so. Well, and and as we look into the future. I'm on a very like bird's eye global view now. I do want to bring it down to us. But well, what it comes back to is that, you know, I mean, just to kind of further the, your bird's eye global view is also that the, the, understanding that the pandemic revealed how tenuous and frail our economic system is for people who don't make more than, you know, $150,000 a year. I can't even imagine what it would feel like to make $30,000 a year. Like that must, you just must be like floating in it. Well, you know, (laughs) I I gotta say at at the height of my teaching, I was making 66,000 a year. And You're yeah, like, I, I, never, rich. I, I never paid attention to like money. Like I was like, whatever, sure, let's buy that. Let's, you know, you know, whatever. I never, I never cared. Um, and I was very comfortable in that. And do I miss that? A little bit. But, but, you know, when you look at the, the, the at the future part of it, like the, the idea of changing the future, and we do have the opportunity to do it. I don't think it's going to happen because there's a bunch of, um, because there's not enough momentum in, in Washington for, you know, the universal basic income or, and even just the idea of universal basic income for children in poverty, you know, who are living oh, in poverty, God. the $300 a month for each child, uh, you know, living and like hearing the arguments, I'm going to get a little political about it just because I was listening to the arguments from the Republican side about like, well, we don't want to do that because it's not fair. It's like, I don't... You understand that we're talking about people who are living under the poverty line and what that $300 a month for each child would actually mean. Like, this is the opportunity to start, you know, righting the wrongs. It's such a classist and then also racist view of people because you're assuming that those people do not love their children and that they wouldn't use the money to feed them. Or, Or that they even deserve it. And the the sheer transactional um, transa- transactionality of that point of view is infuriating because it's like, well, okay, I don't think you, you, you obviously have not been paying attention to what's happened in the past year. Now, prior to that year, of course, yeah, things are bad. But with the year, like it, it, everything is magnified so much. How could you miss the fact, and and by the way, call yourself a Christian, how could you miss the fact that you have people who are being evicted in the middle of a deadly pandemic that is affecting, overwhelmingly affecting um, people of color more than than white America? Mm-hmm. Like the death rate is, is you're three times more likely to die. And, 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 Let's throw that. Let's put them in a hospital, where they're never going to be able to pay that money. Mm, medical uh, debt. You know. Yeah. So when I when I look at that future, and and I do think about like you know trying to bring it back to us a little bit. You know, once again, you know, my I'm fortunate and privileged to, to be where I am, and to be able to live in a way that you know is sustainable and without risking eviction or infection or 
And also recognizing the privilege that both of us have that if we got into a destitute situation, we have family members, extensive family members that would take us in. Yeah. We would not fall to home into houselessness, into, you know, poverty immediately. I mean, we would be considered poverty level, but we would not be like we could become dependents on people who have like more who have the resources to support. Well, and and I, I, I dipped into that. I mean, I borrowed money from my dad because my unemployment got messed up and. I haven't received an unemployment payment since November 24th. Um, so there's a, there's a two and a half month gap in my finances that, you know, had I not borrowed that money from my, from my father, um, you know, things would be a, a little bit different in my life right now. And I think that there's plenty of people who might hear that and say like, you just haven't been enterprising enough because you're not actually, cause I heard that at the, I heard <laughs> yeah. that very early when I was talking about being an unemployed person and I was trying to have to justify this to another musician mm-hmm. who said, in essence, you're not being creative enough about finding other sources of revenue that are available to you online. And I was right, like, like a webcam girl, the, or... <laughs> the places where I actually go to work, people's homes, right. um, artistic venues, bars that have stages for music are closed because it's dangerous because it's a public health issue. So my places of employment are closed and now being required by the state of Maryland to show proof of employment (laughs) as a circumstance for continued unemployment support is like one of the most ridiculous things because it's just like, but I'm unemployed. How can I show you that I'm employed because I'm unemployed and I've been unemployed since the public safety crisis happened? Right. So there's there's another negation of the arts as essential workers because we have been excluded. And I would say this of any gig worker, mm-hmm. that if you're a gig worker in this country you have been sold this bill of goods that your life is your own and that you are choosing, you know, this, this creative path. And I honestly, you know, think that most gig workers are probably, you know, who knows if somebody will do a survey on this or a study on this are psychologically better prepared for this type of uncertainty mm-hmm. because we have lived for decades with financial insecurity. Yeah, we have figuring something out. Yeah. yeah. We've always been problem solvers. That's what artists do so well. That's why artists are fluid in every single sector of society and, um, and corporate possibility because we, the heart of what we do is basically the scientific method. Like mm-hmm. my hypothesis is this, and now I'm going to go try to prove it. Right. Um, and through scientific exploration or through artistic exploration, not scientific, but it's basically like we ask questions and then we, we, allow the answers like a scientist to be revealed to us. We don't try to like control it necessarily. You're allowing the answer to be revealed to you. So it's not for lack of skill. um, But we are prepared for uncertainty in a way that I think people who are not in the arts may have struggled with. Right. However, this level of uncertainty is like, I think the reason why I wanted to talk about, the future on this episode or the way we, we'll, maybe you brought it up it was just that like, it's like, let's start imagining. Sure. What do you imagine? 
because you're getting vaccinated next Friday. Mm-hmm. And I'll probably get vaccinated sometime within the next four or five years. Now, so folks know why I'm getting vaccinated. <laughs> um, oh, is, wait, sorry, I was not supposed to bring it up. Yeah, we're, we weren't going to talk. I didn't really want to talk oh, about it. Oh, sorry. That's well, okay. no, I think we should. No, we're here. It's fine. Um, I'm getting vaccinated because I teach at McDaniel College. And also, uh, I'm the, the me going back to teaching in the county is uh, I, am, I am literally just a lowly bottom-feeding substitute. Don't say bottom feeding. Um, I am. I am. I'm just a. I'm a long term substitute for a, a band teacher who is on leave. Uh, he's teaching from home, so it's a virtual thing. Okay, but my point is that you have been now. You have entered the tier of what is considered quote unquote essential work, and right. I do believe that like if our eye had been on the ball in the spring, and we had said education in this country is under the umbrella of public health. Mm-hmm. We give a shit about kids and their futures. We're going to focus on getting schools open in the yeah. fall. Yeah. We're going to focus on the fact that like, we're going to be safe protocols until teachers are going to be in the first tier of vaccinations. So you should be because you are already on the front lines there yeah. exposing yourself to this virus. And so you don't, you know, like you can feel however you're, you want to feel, but like I'm excited for you to get the 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 vaccination. Yeah, I'm not putting myself in those. I have been like asked to do something sort of similar, like work as a monitor at the school, and I just said basically I'm not even going to apply for any jobs that are in schools until I can get vaccinated. Right. And the thing is, I don't know if I can get vaccinated unless I apply and get accepted at a job at a school. And I'm just like, but I also, you know, I said this before. I don't know if I said it to you on this podcast, but I posted it that I really want all the prisoners in Maryland yeah. to oh. be vaccinated before I get vaccinated. Like if and those guys should, they, well, even listening to ear hustle that I recommended to yeah. you. Yeah. In the sixth season, they talk about that because that's during the pandemic and, and you know, essential workers are, you know, are, is, is, and this has everything to do with how fucked up our country is um, emotionally. Um, those, those people in prison, you know, majority of which are convicted for a crime, you know, that's like, oh, you know, a terrible crime. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. That, mm, that majority? Does... Oh, no, we're at the end. Of the... We're already at the end? Well, it's 38 minutes. <laughs> so. That's so fast. I know. Well, we'll just pause it. Hold on a second. We'll just mute that. Um, the, um, well, I, I'm, I'm speaking, speaking with broad terms, but. Yes, people are convicted for crimes, and some of those crimes are are awful and heinous, and you know, and then some of them are you know, antiquated for um, you know, yeah, drug some, possession. Somebody got caught with some pot, and, and also you know, the system. There's obviously race, racial bias in in the system of how people are incarcerated. All that being said, still, all those men and women who are in prison are locked in a place where they cannot isolate and be away from other people. Right. And it's not because we feel sorry for them that they, they're there. It's that the, the human thing to do is to make sure that they get vaccinated because they have literally nowhere else to go. Right. And the people who are bringing in the disease are the, are the correctional officers. Right. So, and if you also look at it from my point of view, which is that if you view a prisoner as a future citizen, yeah, 
wouldn't you want that person to be alive yeah. and in good health and also like acknowledging the fact that they are, their freedom is restricted. They cannot move away from the virus. The, they have to be protected against it. Right. And, and you know, so we, we think about like that, the sense of like who, who gets those vaccines. Like I certainly prisoners, frontline workers, um, and teachers, the, teachers. And, and the thing about the, the teaching thing that I just, it tickled me to death when I heard about it, when they were talking right before summer started and they're talking about how we're going to reopen in the fall. All I could think was like, oh man, that's going to be so expensive and y'all motherfuckers don't want to spend any money on education anyhow. <laughs> right. Like it's going to, it's going to cost you twice as much than what people are asking for, for you to design classrooms or to have things in place and protocols in place so you can have in-person learning. And even then, I, the classroom I teach in right now is the band room and is arguably next to the gym. It is the largest room in the building. Mm -hmm. And for me to be able to, like right now, the way it's set up, I have 12 chairs in there. That's, I can, if they, well, well now when, when they bring the kids back, and you're going to keep them socially distanced, I can only have 12 students in that room mm -hmm. to be safely you know, separated from each other and from myself. And that is the biggest classroom. So I don't know how they're going to do it in other classrooms. And they think they're going to bring all the kids back. I'm like, well, you can't. There's no way. And we don't have the facilities. We don't have the infrastructure. And we do not have the will to spend the it's money. It's the interest and the will, totally. Yeah. And so... You know, that brings me to just, you know, when we look at the future. Which we haven't talked about our future wishings yet. And we're no. already 40 minutes into our yeah, podcast. Yeah, we're 41 minutes Man, in. Man, what do we talk about? Well, you know, there's a lot There's a lot to, to talk about. Well, we can make this a part one of part two. Um, but the if, if, well, let's kind of bring it back to the future thing. Because we were talking about me going back to work and what that meant and blah, blah, blah. I haven't even talked about my show. I know. We're going to get to that. I want to make sure we get to that. And I think like. So if I think about my future, you know, I, I started thinking about like right now I'm looking like per season, right? Right. You know, right now I'm substituting because I have to and I'm teaching at McDaniel and then I have the AP reading at the end of the year that I always do, which is cool. And I'm, that's going to be online. So I'm just going to be doing that at my house. Um, but then I look at summer and I think, well, I, I've just been thinking about this just two days ago. What am I going to do for money in the summer? Right. And I got to figure out something because I don't want to play music for the summer yet. I mean, maybe a couple shows. It depends on infection rates and it depends on how many people have the vaccine. I need to look at that first. And they're all going to be outside anyhow. I do have one gig offer. I'll probably take it and we'll see what happens. But that's only going to pay like $300. Right. And it's going to be a five-piece band. So I, I make like 40 bucks. Um, so... To me, the future is unwritten as to what happens next. I'm applying for a job uh, teaching at the park school um, in the fall. If that goes through, fine. If it doesn't, fine too. I don't care. I'm not going to go back and get my re-up my teaching certificate so I can teach in high school or anything like that. I'm not interested in that. Um, but like to me, musically, the only thing I know I can do is what I've always done, which is make records. Like that's that's my goal. Is the, I'm going to make a record. I'm going to work on my website. I'm going to work the Bandcamp subscription. I'm going to keep doing that, pushing that, because I don't know if live music is going to come back the way that it's supposed to come back. I know that I will, I will want to go see more live music than I was. Yeah, I'm in the same mind. Like, I feel I'm 
probably saw, I, I mean, I can put everything under the umbrella of live performance because I was seeing a lot of theater as well. So like in the before times, my general practice was I want to see at least like one show per week. And I had a, like a monetary budget. I was trying to see at least four shows a month of either a theater or puppet show or a movie that I paid for or a music performance. Um, so I definitely want to up that because I want to continue to support that community. But you and I have talked about this, that I think that my relationship to live performance in an ideal world, I want to feel when I step on the stage, the way that I feel the second I step in the water to swim, Mm -hmm. which is like, I intentionally planned to do this. I'm excited. I'm wearing the right gear. I'm prepared. I practice for it. I'm ready. I haven't had that feeling in 10 years. I haven't felt relaxed. And part of it is because my ambition was frankly outsizing my personal ability, which is that I wanted to do these big shows that involve like, choreography and video presentations and other people. And I didn't have the money to really be doing that in a way that made me feel like I wasn't draining myself. Right. Um, and also thinking about and worrying about ticket sales right up until the moment of stepping onto the stage. And so for me, I've been taking a puppetry workshop. I'm working on a puppet show of my own. And the, the purpose of the puppet workshop is not necessarily to make some kind of great work of art. Again, I'm a scientist. I'm asking a question. I'm going to see what the answer reveals itself to be. Mm-hmm. But there's an element of the show that I realized I wanted to build into every future endeavor, which is that before, because this particular puppet show is a between two and five minutes, it's one puppeteer, one audience member. So it's a very intimate type of show. And I wanted to create a meditative moment into it before the performance begins for myself so that I could remind myself to be grateful to the universal hum for the opportunity to like fucking perform puppetry and music and art for people and also to share that part of myself. But that I, I see other performances, other performers do that where they take these moments to themselves where they sit in the green room and meditate before the, the experience And I want to have, like, when I imagine my future as a performer, whether it's playing music for an audience or performing in any way, that I don't want to be so, I want to have delegated to trusted team members Mm -hmm. that the lighting and the sound, that everything is taken care of, that I can just relax into the performance. Because I've I've rarely, rarely, in 25 years of performance, I, I rarely have that experience. And so... For me, returning to a new paradigm, I don't want to say the word normal, but a new Mm -hmm. paradigm is that it's going to involve me taking that me time before performance. Um, And also just really being choosy about the performances that I do and making sure that it's like, I in the future, I don't necessarily want to be promoting the show. Yeah. I want that to completely be on the house concert presenter and I'm doing, and I have a contract that says I will make this many posts, two posts, send it on the newsletter. And then everything else is up to you to sell tickets. And this is the guarantee. That's my, I'm putting that out there intentionally that I want to have be more stringent about having a guarantee that, that actually meets my living expenses um, and supports me and the people that I employ to support me, whether that's you to play with me or another band member. 
Um, you're looking at the clock, so we got to no, wrap it up. Uh, we're, we're okay. We're, I mean, we got a little bit, but no, I, I agree. And I and I think the one thing that you know, whenever I get offered a show, I mean, basically, I mean, if it's a solo acoustic show, I'm like, yeah, I'm three hundred bucks. I'm like, I'm just, I'm not gonna mince words. I'm like, no, I'm three hundred bucks. Like, I think you should raise it. Well, that's uh, for my band. It's like you know, no, I mean, the band five hundred to a thousand dollars. I mean, for little gigs or whatever, but. I mean, I should raise it, but for me to say three hundred, like, because no one's going to hire me for that. Um, well, maybe we can put it out there and say, "This is how much you need to like. If you want to make that, you want to play ten gigs a month at three hundred dollars. That's what your net is from those, you know. Yeah. Like, and that's what I mean, net, not gross. Um, the other thing I want to talk about before we say adieu is one of the ways that um, I tried to approach the pandemic was through live performance on live streaming. And I did 40 shows in a row from April 1 to December 30th. And it was at times wonderful and amazing. And at times really, really just like soul destroying in a way that I didn't realize was happening and just like soul, not destroying, but just like it really sucked the energy out of the room sometimes when I, cause I, I would have these like great experiences feeling like I had really conveyed and Yet I was, when I returned to earth from that moment of like singing a note, mm -hmm. I was completely alone. It was one of the last couple months of the live stream on Wednesdays was really, really isolating. And primarily because I wasn't interacting, I wasn't able to interact with people who were commenting because I had the cameras up and I'm also playing guitar and doing the show and all the technical stuff. Right. So I gathered you and Blonnie Brooks and D David Miltzarek from WAGS Media about a month ago to celebrate my crash anniversary, which is the eighth anniversary of um, a violent trauma that I experienced in 2013, um, terrible car wreck. And I wanted to present this as um, part of an ongoing project I'm calling Recovering Eurydice. And the tickets are available today. Today is March 3rd. Mm -hmm. And they're available for two weeks and you can watch the whole concert as many times as you want when you buy a ticket for only $10. And I'm going to, when I post this webcast, I will post the Eventbrite where you can buy tickets for it. Um, it's a 40-minute concert. I play eight songs. You recorded the sound. Blonnie and Divey did the video and the editing. And there's also included some of the animations I've created over the last couple of years. And it's the first, like, really public cohesive output I've had of this ongoing recovery project that explores themes of like what it's like to be, feel like you're in hell, what it's like to experience PTSD, mm -hmm. um, some pretty serious and heavy topics and also some humor presented through the eyes of somebody who is traversing a landscape in an attempt to recover. Right. And so I, I put it out there as this offering because as we experience the collective grief and loss of what's happening to our communities because of racial and social and economic injustice and climate change and the pandemic, this trifecta of, of issues that is, you know, affecting life for humans on earth. Um, and then ancillary, everyone, every other body on earth right. is that like, it's grief. And you helped me encourage me to watch a show called WandaVision. Mm -hmm. And there was a quote in the last episode where Vision turns to Wanda and says, well, what is grief? Doesn't uh, he? Yeah, he says, what is grief? But love, love persevering. persevering. Yeah. And when, as we move forward into what is going to be a really long grief process, it's important, and I want people to hear me say this, that it's not ruminating, it's not dwelling for us to recognize what has happened 
and to talk about it in very real and stark terms and how it's affected us. And that's why I put forth this work because I want this work to be a part of that exploration of what it means to like go through a grieving process on a personal level and how it relates to other people, even though they may have not experienced the same thing. It's all grief and loss and change and moving through it. So I'm going to make that available. And that's one of my, what I've been thinking about is that the live stream felt kind of uncontrollable and unsatisfying and the video making was much better because, first of all, it involved my friends and a collaboration and I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. And also we had a chance to really shape it and form it into what I wanted it to look and sound like. Right. And I had a lot more control and that felt better. And for me, a way to sort of like think about the future of what I could offer in the absence of the ideal live performance that I'm looking for. Right. That's my speech. That's good. That was a good speech. Man, we have been talking. We have been. I didn't think it was going to be... I thought we were going to do a short one today. Well, we were, but here we are. Well, um, Ellen Cherry, let's just say that I wanted to subscribe to your Bandcamp page. Where would I do that? And would that have anything to do with the video? It does. If you become a subscriber, you get access to the video between now and March 31st. Um, you can find it at ellencherry.bandcamp.com slash subscribe. And for only $4 a month, you get all of my back catalog, a bunch of artistic, crazy, weird stuff that I've been doing, and this concert, as well as I'm going to release the recording as a live recording in the coming months, so that will also be up there. Awesome. What about you? Where can we find you? Well, you can find my stuff at junestar.bandcamp.com. Um, you can also find it at junestar.com. Uh, but I have a subscription that you run for. I run for five dollars a month, and uh, it's there hasn't been a whole lot of movement on it in the past month. I've been busy doing other stuff, but um, um, staying housed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, but but soon the the new June Star record will be up there, um, and I am going to get back into my writing habits and start producing some more some more songs on there. Um, but you can find that at junestar.bandcamp.com forward slash subscribe, and. Uh, I, I, I peaked out at 103 subscribers. Now I'm back to 98. You gotta get that number back up. Gotta, gotta, gotta get that number up. Have you ever considered mm. just reading things to people? Because your, vo- your voice is so sonorous. Mm. And if you just like said, today on Andrew Grimm's reading hour, I'm going to read you this letter I got from this bill or whatever or reading something that you want to read and then you could just like that way you're just doing it and you're like right every monday you wake up in the morning i'm a subscriber and i would get an audio recording of you being like hello dear listener this is andrew Grimm, and i'm going to read you a poem from Rilke. <laughs> right yeah morning meditations or Ooh, like yeah i think that would be fantastic because mm. your voice is so mellifluous Malif- oh what a great word mellifluous <laughs> sonorous. Sonorous. Yeah. Is it sonorous? I think it's sonorous. I could let, be wrong. Let's change it to sonorous. <laughs> Sonor- sonorous. <laughs> sonorous does sound wrong now. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we're going to say goodbye because it's time to go. Bye, Jim. So long, Mr. Baker. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, Mr. Grimm. Bye, Miss Cherry. Disco's still cool. If you're nasty. <laughs>